Great. Continue. Great. So welcome everybody to the Cognitive Science Show. Um, I'm John Verveke. Uh, I, I have with me uh, Anna uh, uh, Riedel, is that correct? Yes. Uh, yes. From, she's a graduate student at the University of Vienna. And Anna reached out to me recently. Um, she'd been watching uh, uh, Awakening from the Meaning Crisis and some of uh, the work I've been doing around, uh, around rationality in particular, also wisdom. And uh, the papers were actually more important. Yeah. Oh, yes. Uh, so she, uh, she also has read uh, the papers I've written on relevance realization. Um, and so she reached out to me and she said, you know, I'm doing all this work on uh, the nature of rationality right now. And I think your work and my work uh, are actually quite convergent. And would you like to talk? And so I said, yeah, that sounds great. And so we started talking and we realized that she was right. Uh, there is a lot of convergence, uh, uh, and uh, she's bringing a lot of insight and creativity to bear on this topic of rationality and how it potentially integrates with my work on rationality and relevance realization. And we're actually uh, working on a paper together. Um, and so, uh, Anna, it's just great to have you here. Welcome. Thank you so much. Uh, yeah, I, I, when I when I messaged you, I couldn't like believe that you were so positive about working together and I, I'm super happy that I can also contribute some insights actually the other way around as well because your work did that a lot to me. Well that's great thank you for saying that Anna. So Anna let's start with you know uh, uh, some questions that I think should be foregrounded again which is um, you know why why should we care about rationality? Uh, let me just lay out a couple of questions uh, and um, how is our, our sort of standard classical definition of rationality inadequate? And then we've had a couple of phases around a rationality debate, uh, rationality debate one and rationality debate two. So let's, let's work our way through those questions first. But first, uh, let's start with why would anybody care about this? Like why study rationality? Why does it matter? Um, so first of all, because this is the cognitive science show, um, I think it's one of the just most interesting topics in cognitive science, because yeah. it is really truly at this intersection of so many disciplines. It is like one of the foundational ideas in economics, the idea of rational choice theory. Um, but it, yeah, it's also a central idea of the study of intelligence by now, when you, uh, combine it with the ideas of computational rationality, um, as well as in psychology. Uh, like basically it is exactly this stage um, where, where the best of cognitive science can happen. It's this big conversation between multiple fields and ongoing conversation and also ongoing debates. And then like this, this is the, the theoretical part about it that makes it very interest, interesting because it's where everything comes together and you really can translate for, from one discipline to the other. Uh, what does the, the insight from one mean for the other? And yeah, just bring people together uh, for a lot of new insights. Um, but then on a more um, practical side, um, two fundamental questions that are often mentioned when we talk about rationality is the question of what is true and what should we do, what to do, uh, which is like sometimes called theoretical rationality or epistemic rationality and then practical or instrumental rationality. And basically on a practical philosophical question applying to your own life, if you've answered those two questions, then you're done. I mean, what else is there apart from how does the world work and what should I do? 
Um, so I, I think on a practical sense, that's like very, very relevant for every life and exactly how you also talk, talk about it, like systematically overcoming uh, delusion and so forth, like seeing clearly and acting accordingly. So I think all those ideas are, are really, so my motivation is really coming from life and not just from an academic perspective. Yeah, we share that. That's excellent. Um, and of course, the notion of rationality has been sort of perennially a, a, a characteristic by which human beings have tried to distinguish themselves as a particular kind of organism on the planet. We are the rational beings, you know, a la Aristotle, and of course, then re reinforced again by Descartes. Um, and there's even sort of like within law, there's a presumption of rationality. What would a reasonable person do, et cetera? So this, this is all through everything we do. Um, and, and you're right, it's, off, it's from the sort of most philosophical uh, down to the most practical. We are concerned with this in almost everything we do. So why, why is the work to be done though? Like why, why isn't the idea that, you know, uh, you know, we've got sort of this, I would argue, truncated uh, leftover. We, we have Aristotle's notion that we're the rational animal. And then we've got Descartes' notion that that means we're uh, logical, computational in nature. And there we're done. Isn't that? And we have, uh, we have sort of a priori mathematics for doing economics. And isn't, isn't this all working smoothly? Or uh, are there serious reasons to call that original, uh, uh, that original picture into question? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so uh, when, when I mentioned the great rationality debate, then of course, um, it really started with like, first of all, we had those assumptions, uh, like humans as the rational animal or just as rational, we had this idea of homo economicus. And basically that the rational choice theory is not just an idea, but it's really, it's not just normative, but it is descriptive of human behavior. So right. that we, we are behaving optimally in every sense, basically. And then the big shift, the big first debate really was by um, by the whole um, heuristics and bias tradition um, coming forth with the idea that there might be systematic deviations from rationality. And this was important that it was systematic, which is the biases, um, because before it was already believed, of course, we make errors, but they're just random. But right. the idea that there might be really systematic ways in which we deviate from optimal or rational behavior, um, that was really um, what basically created the first big shift in the whole idea space. Um, and that was, of course, as I said, brought, brought forth by the uh, heuristic and bias, biases tradition, which like in this whole framework, there were many, many people working and the most popular names are, and most important names are of course, uh, Daniel Kahneman and uh, Amos Tversky, um, who then developed not just, did not just demonstrate that we are deviating from these models so that they are not descriptive of actual human behavior, but they also really empirically showed um, better alternatives, right? So they showed prospect theory, how we, for example, um, yeah, uh, value losses way more than, than we value gains, um, but also they showed this underlying cognitive systems that, that work in it, like system one and system two, that we have this uh, aut autonomous um, system that yeah, just like automatically solves many daily problems, but sometimes we need to decouple from the environment we're in to yeah to like um, think longer about problems. I, th I think the the most <laughs> famous idea to show it is the the bat and the ball problem. Right. Um, yes. Yeah, so um, a, a baseball bat and a baseball together cost one dollar and ten cents. Uh, the baseball no the bat costs 
one dollar more than the baseball, how much does the baseball cost? Right. And then you can immediately see how your intuition is, okay, it's 10 cents. Right. But then you have to pull back and you have to go, wait, that doesn't actually make sense. And then you have to actively, right, right. you have to have both the process to pull back and then you have to have the mind where to do the right calculation to then come up with its five cents. Right. And this really shows how you have this intuitive response, system one, that is uh, in this case problematic. So they really showed uh, yeah, a, a cognitive alternative to the yeah, rational, rational man. So part of this uh, uh, right, was influenced also by Simon and the notion of bounded rationality. Um, and some of the people who are familiar with my work. Um, the idea that um, the application of many of these uh, uh, normative uh, theories, normative strategies like probability theory or deductive logic uh, would actually be computationally intractable. You, mm -hmm. uh, a system couldn't, a finite system couldn't actually use them. Cherniak made this famous. You would hit combinatorial explosion. You'd get overwhelmed. You'd commit cognitive suicide whenever you try to apply any of these uh, strategies in actual life. And so this notion of bounded rationality that uh, uh, we had to first limit the problem space and only, then only when it's, once it was limited within it, could we run these more algorithmic processes. Um, and, and for me, that, exactly. had just, that had just a huge impact on my thinking, uh, uh, especially Cherniak's book, Minimal Rationality, very badly titled book, but a very good book um, uh, because he emphasized that we are not we don't hold people accountable, for example, checking all possible contradictions or all possible implications. We only hold them accountable for checking the relevant contradictions and the relevant implications. And that sort of got was one of the things that got me really interested in, wait, this, this ability to zero in on relevant information is doing a lot of the heavy lifting. And so uh, I, I, I got very much involved with that. Now, one of the people that... Um, we might want to mention is, of course, Gigerenzer, because Gigerenzer yes. was also influenced by Simon. Um, exactly. Um, maybe I, I jump in here. So uh, you were already talking about exactly all those problems, co uh, combinatorial explosion and so forth, and uh, yeah. the problem of the yeah problem space and how you have to um, um, basically make that smaller. Um, so I haven't actually read Cherniak at all. I never read him. So we really cl climbed the same mountain from different yes. ends yes but i got to the whole topic via the great rationality debate of which i've heard and which i've studied and um so right there was uh kahneman twersky with all of their ideas um and this is often called the meliorist stance or the axiomatic approach to rationality because they measured rationality by so basically it's in the maximizing ut uh, expected utility <laughs> idea um and you measure the distance to optimal rationality by how often you uh, violate the axioms of rationality. That's the whole axiomatic approach in which they have operated. But this got then uh, criticized by the ecological approach to rationality of which Gigerenzer was the right. biggest right. or most popular name, uh, which is also sometimes called the fast and frugal approach. Um, and the main claim he really made about, was about ecological val validity of those ideas, because yeah, not always is it actually beneficial to do longer calculations about anything. So right. he really made this question of like, what, but what does actually work, right? Yeah. Uh, not about like some fundamental truth, but really what does, how does it work? And so there were th those two sides. And I basically ended up reading about your work 
by trying to unify those two sides from exactly this computational approach that you've mentioned, which then runs into the problem of uh, uh, combinatorial explosion. Um, yeah, now I could argue through whole, the whole argumentation here, uh, how I ended up with it, if you want to. Well, let's do that in a sec. I, I do want to hear yes. that. But I just want to stop and say, so we've got sort of two things that uh, need to, we, we sort of pay, need to pay attention to. Yes. Uh, and one is the computational limitations, uh, which has been sort of uh, uh, very central to my work. And then coming out of GigaRenzer, um, uh, which is also another part of my work is that the environment matters, the relationship to the environment you're in matter, right? So it's not just internal co uh, uh, computational limitations that we have to talk about with rationality. We also have to talk about what kind of environment the reasoner or the being trying to be rational is within. Because part of Giga Renzer's point was, I, I take him, uh, is that in certain environments, these so-called biases, uh, these heuristics, actually operate much better than the purported uh, algorithms that are coming out of the a priori theory. Uh, so he yes, was yes. saying in a lot of contexts that, you know, you're actually better off and you can show this. It's not just sort of, you know, anecdotal. You can show, you know, often strictly, logically, you can show, yes. you know, no, no, this heuristic in this really messy, ill-defined environment exactly. will always, or not always, that's too strong, will almost always do better than this formal probability theory or decision theory kind of thing not not always or not always almost always but on average and that's the important part yes which yes. is which says it's more ro robust and this is exactly the one of the concepts we were talking about <laughs> the, the efficiency robustness trade-off yes exactly please continue on that um yeah, so um, there is an example that um, Hertwig also makes where he talks about the whole topic in finance. So the underlying question here is the, um, the topic of the bias variance dilemma, which right. is also an important topic in, uh, in ecological rationality, where Gigerenza says, but uh, the whole axiomatic approach to rationality has a bias bias, because they often claim that simple solutions are automatically a bias. So for example, uh, yeah. using the one, uh, one to n, heuristic, like diversifying in a naive way, uh, would be called from an axiomatic approach uh, view, it would be called the, um, uh, it would be called the naive diversification bias already. But then when you show, so when you have a lot of data in, in investing, uh, then you can actually use a more optimal uh, solution. But on average, if you actually a priori don't know what's to come, or if there's a lot of uncertainty, then a simple um, diversification simple diversification strategy on average will actually outperform the other one uh, or a more complex one. So this is exactly the trade-off between efficiency and robustness. And this is of course, extremely important for any organism in the real world, because yeah. it doesn't matter if you have like kind of in one world survive, but yeah. So now I could like make the point of like your point about normativity, right? Because that's really grounded in the organism surviving. So you need this robustness, you, yeah. <laughs> That's really good. That was what I just want to stop because that was sort of exciting for me, part of your work, because I, I, I had sort of bought into, uh, you know, uh, the speed accuracy trade off ideas. Yes. Uh, and so Kahneman Tversky, you know, we use heuristics because they're faster, but the price is they're they're biased. And the price we pay for that is we're going to be less accurate. And when we can take more time, we will end up being more accurate. But what you're saying is no. 
there, that trade-off is not always the case. It's not, right. There are many instances where taking longer doesn't mean you will get more accurate. Exactly. Um, and that's exactly how I ended up there with the question of robustness and efficiency. So yeah. when I looked at the whole conflict, and really my first sense was just like, I do think you can unify them and bring them closer together. And then my approach or how I looked at it was by <clears throat> looking at the question of computational rationality. And there right. was this really important paper by Gershman, Horvitz, and Tenenbaum, um, where they really talked about it as this new um, paradigm for studying intelligence and my, in minds, brains, and machines. Um, and they basically made the point, the same one as, as Stuart Russell, by the way, that you have to, in any optimal decision-making, you have to factor in both um, the costs, like the co cognitive costs of further computation, but yeah. you also have to factor in the opportunity costs in the environment. Exactly. Which exactly. means, so, and they have this, this um, very nice diagram that I now don't have <laughs> on me, but um, of, of course the value of information is, is positive, right? You can think more and then you might be better in what you're doing, but at some point it drops radically and, it, and they basically, I think they really label the diagram as stop thinking and act now. Because yeah. um, let's let's say you're trying to really in an, uh, in an emergency situation, you try to to save someone who's like injured or something. Then you can think that oh my god, I don't know like how what do I have to do now, right? And you can start thinking, um, but at the same same time the person might be bleeding, so you have concrete opportunity costs. Every second that you're now thinking, there's something yeah. happening, yes. um, and also with every second that's like <laughs> that's. Uh, going by, you might notice, okay, I actually don't have much more gain by thinking longer now. So just like doing anything is probably net positive and just like any, any thinking is just not valuable anymore. So really just bringing in the whole overhead kind of cost of computation and opportunity cost is the idea of this computational rationality when you are really an, an yes, agent yes. embedded in an environment. And then what uh, some other researchers did, uh, Leader and Griffith, is the idea of resource rational analysis. Right. So they said exactly this. So many heuristics are optimal once you actually integrate both those things, cost of computation and opportunity costs. And yes. they said, okay, of course, we have this idea of optimality. But in any real life situation, this is, of course, uh, a normativity uh, that we cannot actually reach. So we need to have a kind of realistic standard, which is resource rationality instead of like perfect optimality. That's just not possible when you are embedded in a real life environment. Um, so what they did is just lowering the, the kind of the upper like normative standard for rationality by integrating all those problems. Um, so I was like, okay, maybe is this enough to unify those two positions? But then again, I ended up exactly at it's not only a speed accuracy trade-off because right, right. only that will not answer a lot of other questions. This is so exciting. <laughs> um, well, well, because I, I, it's, it's so this work is like you're, the work you're doing. First of all, it's like it's philosophically deep. It's you're it's it's you know your 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 scholastic, you know background is excellent. This is cutting edge stuff. Thank you. It's not it's not flattery. It's genuine. This is what you're doing, and this, it's so exciting. Uh, and the thing that the thing that I want to get out partially uh, in, uh, I want more people to be aware of your work but also it's Thank like <laughs> get people to see how far the best work on rationality is from the current popular models of rationality that are floating around on YouTube 
where this old, very classical model, you know, you're logical all the time, you're mathematical all the time, right? And, 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 you, right? and you just fling, uh, you know, fallacies and biases at people um, at will. Um, yeah, that, that is actually very far removed from the best science we have about rationality right now. So it actually um, is often uh, not being what it thinks it is. It's often not exemplifying uh, the best rationality in its supposed defense of rationality. I think that's very, I think that's very, very important right now uh, because I think uh, this more embodied and humane understanding of rationality could make it again, something uh, that could have more general appeal to people. Um, so let's go back to it. I, I just wanted to say that. that yes, that's thank you. Important work. <laughs> yes, yes. I have so much more to say also about the, the more mathematical approach to rationality, but that comes later after the main yeah. main topic. So, okay, we were talking right now about two conflicts, right? Like one's the, um, the efficiency robustness uh, conflict and the speed accuracy conflict. And this these two, I noticed yeah. then, is exactly a, a, an analogy to Simon Scissors. So yes. Exactly, those two blades of Simon Scissors. One is the one. One is the task environment, and one is the the internal cognitive constraints. Of, right. Yeah. Herbert Simon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly, yeah. and this is what one of the main parts of kind of the current rationality debate. Like, what is even the rationality problem? And they exactly make those th this point that the rationality problem is framed by both those blades. Yes. Um, and so, and this is where your work comes in because you also said. There are those two conflicts, but to um, to actually solve them, uh, you have to have this paradigm shift away from from a framing where you can think about it in a in a like decision uh, decision analysis or like quantitative kind of way, because the fundamental problem is the overcoming uh, overcoming uh, uh, an ill-defined problem, overcoming a frame problem to yeah. pose uh, uh, or to have a well-posed problem. And then you can apply the numerical analysis. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's where our work just comes together like that. And that, I just wanna, I just wanna like when, again, I, I've said this before, when somebody that you didn't know independently gets to a place that you got to, remember, I, 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 this is an argument for the plausibility of the proposal. Uh, yes. When people <laughs> are coming through, you know, doing, I'm including myself, but so Anne and I, we didn't know each other. We're looking at this literature and then we're coming to a, a very convergent conclusion. Uh, that means that there's something at least extremely plausible about what we're talking about right now. So yes, one yes. thing, but, one other but, thing. Yeah, maybe, maybe you should now actually, maybe you can now explain because it's actually your work and it would feel really weird to now go ahead and explain your work kind of back to you. So maybe you want to explain the frame problem and like maybe the, the robot, robot story from Bennett and like what relevance realization is because I think the listeners like now we're just tell, telling each other how awesome we are <laughs> instead of explaining the stuff oh, we're actually doing. <laughs> I mean I, we're, we're not so much saying we're awesome as people we're saying that this proposal is highly <laughs> plausible and very relevant which I think is good I, I'll do that in a sec but I do want to ask you one more question because there was yes, another yes. piece that you introduced me to that has to do with the nature of the environment which is again a, a, a much clearer distinction between risk and uncertainty, and, and a proposal yes, yes. for a kind of radical uncertainty, because I think that also has an important impact on our understanding of the environment that the rational organism is facing. Yes, um, I'm not sure whether it makes sense to 
do that right now because I feel like in the argumentation there would be a big jump right now. Oh, okay. Uh, so maybe you first want to go with uh, the relevance realization and then I come back to the uncertainty question. That's fine. We can do it that way. So let's put a pin in it. Uh, let's just note that um, we're going to come back to uh, uh, that this way of looking at the environment um, with fresh eyes that also has shifted how people are thinking about rationality. So the relevance realization idea is that um, relevance is um, a kind of property that is central to all of cognition because what relevance does, and I'm not gonna go through these because I do them in my series. I'll just put links to the videos, right? So you, many, uh, this isn't a lot of my work, the idea that we face a combinatorial explosive amount of information outside of ourselves, right? We face a combinatorial explosive amount of information in, within long-term memory and all the possible ways we can connect it and access it. And then we face what's called the frame problem, all the possible sequences of behavior and all the possible effects and side effects of our behavior. And we're trying to manage all of that. And if you were to try to calculate that, and I'm using that word very precisely, you would hit combinatorial explosion. You would, no finite agent could do it within the, the future history of the universe. But we're doing it right now. That's the thing. You somehow ignore most of all of that information. You shrink the problem space down and you do it in a way so that you are very, very frequently uh, getting the right, making the right connections, doing what's appropriate in the situation. And you also have a capacity for correcting that. I take the phenomena of insight to be an instance of where you have done this, you've done this shrinking of the problem, you've framed the situation and you've done it incorrectly. You've zeroed in on the wrong information and you, you, you all know it, you have this aha and you realize that you were treating X as relevant and X isn't relevant and you were ignoring Y as irrelevant and it turns out Y is relevant and then you bring that two together. So you, what that tells us is we have a process of relevance realization and it's dynamically self-organizing and self-correcting in nature. When you take a look at what kind of theory you could give for that, you, you run up against two core problems. Uh, the first problem is that the typical level at which we have tried to, the typical levels at which we try to explain cognition are very problematic with respect to relevance. Um, I won't repeat these arguments in length. I will put links again. We typically think of the mind as using representation, although that's very much controversial in cognitive science, but in the general world, the, um, the mind is the representing thing. That's the thing we've got from Descartes and Locke. The problem is representations presuppose relevance realization. Every representation is aspectual. An aspect is to zero in on out of all the properties of a thing, sub subset of its properties. So this is a TV remote, but I could be using it as a weapon. I could use it to stand for the letter I in a sentence I wanna write out, right, et cetera. And so I'm always doing, whenever I represent something, I'm already, I'm already presupposing that relevance realization has occurred. So the representational level can't be the level that generates relevance realization. Same thing at what's called the logical or the syntactical level, because any attempt to apply a rule right? I can't specify the conditions under which the rule applies. Uh, if I try to specify the condition with other rules, I get an infinite regressive rules. This is an argument that goes back to Wittgenstein, perhaps to Aristotle. And so I have to have something that's not a rule, right? Uh, and not a syntactic rule um, that is responsible for that judgment. The other thing is the relevance of a proposition is constantly varying, even though its logical structure is constant. 
So Fodor's famous example, it's windy today. I mean, I can tell you what the syntax is and what all the logic is and the truth conditions of it, but the relevance of that varies depending on if I'm staying in, if I'm going sailing, if I'm planning on going to the picnic and proposing marriage, right? So all these different things, the relevance of the proposition is constantly varying, but it's logical syntactic structure. It's constant. So all of these things say, okay, the semantic level, the level of representations, right? The propositional, all these levels are not the level at which relevance realization occurs because those levels presuppose relevance realization. So the proposal that uh, Tim Lillicrap and Blake Richards made, and then I did further work with Leo Ferraro is, we are actually talking, and Anna has already talked about this with resource-based rationality. We have to drop to what we call the bioeconomic level. You have to pay attention to the costs, the bioeconomic costs, these are not just metabolic costs, they are also opportunity costs, as Anna said. So whenever you, what, what the system is, what, what the, the learning system is doing, what your brain is always doing, is it's trying to evolve how it's constraining the problem space. And the way it does this is it does this uh, by something we argued analogous to evolution, which is also a bioeconomic theory. Evolution says that what you have uh, across species is you have variation within the population, and then there's a selective pressure, right? And then from that variation occurs, and then selective pressure, and then from that variation occurs. And what we propose is that multiple levels of cognition, you can see it at uh, uh, level, high levels of cognition, attentional levels, perceptual level, in many different ways, the system is constantly trading between something that is generating the cognitive system, something that's generating variation and something that's generating selection. Um, in one way, and so in the, the brain is trying to be as efficient as it possibly can, use the best possible resource or the best possible function that generalizes the most powerfully, et cetera. Uh, but on the other hand, the brain is also trying to be robust. It's trying to keep its options open. It's trying to be right uh, uh, capable of evolving. So it keeps, it, it, right? Um, the, the analogy here is to um, the robustness problem in biology. Um, so if you're an organism, you don't want to be the variant mutant because you're going to die. But if there's no variant mutants, the species can't evolve. Um, and so how do you solve that tension? Well, the, you have what's called degeneracy or robustness. Uh, so what you have is you have a lot of overlap in the genome that initially, get, right, that, that doesn't make much difference at the phenotypical level. But soon as you need the, the variation, it, it's there in the genome and the system can just shift and adapt suddenly. So the, it, it, the, the system is always trying to trade between efficiency and evolvability, efficiency and robustness. And so it's constantly varying its options and then selecting them and varying them and selecting them. And the idea is uh, that process of relevance realization is constantly evolving and ongoing. This addresses the other problem. The other problem is you can't really have a theory of relevance uh, because it doesn't have any of the properties that we need for scientific theorizing. Um, it's not intrinsic to any object. Um, it, it's not all the things that we find relevant are not don't form, form any homogeneous set other than we find them relevant. And um, the set of things that we find relevant isn't stable. Something can be relevant one minute and not relevant the next. And so we can't, can't really do that. But what we can do is we can give a theory of how relevance is constantly evolving without ever having to define it in any perfect or final form. So that that's the theory is as quickly as I could do it. I hope that works. <laughs> that's <laughs> a lot. Thank you. Um, 
I'll, I'll jump in here. Um, so what you just said about, okay, it's, it's a process of generating what is relevant and you cannot make an a priori statement of what will be relevant. Yes. And this is exactly the problem I had with the proposals to enhance rationality that for uh, that mostly the axiomatic approach to rationality would make. And uh, I'm not the only one criticizing that. Um, so th there often is this idea of um, that you can basically calculate the right question with exactly um, like uh, with um, expected uh, value calculations and so forth. Yeah. Like for example, when it comes to framing problems. So there's this very famous disease problem where you have the same numbers of um, lives lost or saved. And, and just by framing this, the same kind of um, trade-off you would make in a different way where once you would, you'd definitely decide for certain people to die. And then the other side is like, you have kind of more chance to, to save people. So this changes what people select. And then uh, it said, but uh, it's only the expected value that matters, right? So you can do the calculation and then one is objectively better than the other. Um, but I would say exactly that you cannot optimally overcome framing effects because the framing does often matter, right? Because we are embedded in a social environment. So yeah. it depends what <laughs> you have. You need to have abductive reasoning and insight into what in this very moment matters. And this depends not only on the numbers, but also, so if you actually come, you are, I don't know, the boss of some international organization, you come in a board meeting and someone says, this is the thing you have to decide with this or this. And they say, it's about either we kill people <laughs> or we, we don't. And then this is a lot of additional information. It's not just about the number and some expected value, but in this case, it is about actively killing someone, which is a very different from like actively doing an intervention to help people. Like it is just also additional information, but it might also be social information. Just like, is this person deceiving me? Um, and then the question of looking closer what the numbers mean is more relevant when you are in a social environment where you might not even trust the information. So you, there is basically never a situation where you can just rely on the yeah. syntactical um, representation and just um, calculate with it. Exactly. And this is exactly, not, now we can come to the uncertainty. And I'll need another sip of water. Um, because this is exactly how I, because of your work, am changing how I'm seeing the whole landscape of rationality. And there are other points about just exactly this. So some people say uh, risk or like uncertainty is quantifiable and uh, therefore rationality is calculable. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and so for example, one word would be, uh, one work would be by uh, Henry Brighton, who he wrote about rationality without optimality. But there's, there's many people who now claim, and I agree with that, that uncertainty is fundamentally radical and unquantifiable. So when we are, so we can go back even to work by Savage, who yeah. was super important for probability theory. And he already said, okay, but like Bayesian, Bayesian decision theory only applies to small worlds, right? Yes. When they are already well posed, but in the large world of the, in the real world, where you have ill posed problems, it doesn't work at all. So, um, and David Marr, um, who read like, uh, the Mar Marian levels of analysis, he made the same point. He said there is type one theories and there's type two theories. And type one theories is where you can just explain some mechanisms. But for type two, it's theories where <coughs> a process it is its own simplest description. So you have to go through the process and it's really uh, an emergent um, thing. And 
whenever you are in a large world, uh, whenever you have radical uncertainty, um, whenever you are, you need type two theories, then the most important question of rationality is exactly this question of what is relevant and how can I create an, a well-posed problem? And this yeah. is the question of relevance realization and of insight. So I do think we still need axiomatic rationality and yes. what it suggests, but yeah. I would say like, this is axiomatic rationality, but the most important, way more important question, big question is how does an organism, an agent, whatever, look at the world as at a complex problem and come to an insight to create a well-posed problem that you then can apply cultural artifacts and tools like probability theory too. But this is the this is still a hard problem, but it's the it is the the soft problem of rationality. And the other one is the hard problem of rationality, so to speak. Yeah, that's very well put, Anna. That's so very well put. Um, so what does that mean then? I, 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 I think this is a very plausible argument and the way it's all coming together is quite elegant, quite elegant. Um, what does that mean then? Uh, given what we said at the beginning about the centrality, even of our self-understanding, our self-interpretation uh, of what it is to be a person and a human being and a moral agent and all that, what does that mean? It, given this new, this new emerging account theory of rationality, what does that mean for us in general? So for people outside, for people unlike you and I, who are just really like, ah, about this, because we just, this work is so, you know, intriguing and interesting. What would this, what does this mean now worrying back to the people we were talking about at the beginning of our conversation for every, for, you know, the everyday person, what does this new conception of rationality mean for them? Um, huh. uh, that's a difficult question. Uh, so, I, I really often came to the question with wondering how we can enhance rationality. Yes. And I, and I do think many of the, of the suggestions that already came from the axiomatic approach do still apply because often they were about, right, whenever you have a mismatch of either using system one or system two, kind of referring to the right one. And more often because we tend to be like sloppy and taking the automatic um, process on like often it would mean to more often um, use the system to uh, system two. And I still do think that applies because it means you step back, you take this meta perspective and overcome your current framing. Yeah. Um, and this often right there was meant to basically apply a more quantitative approach or whatever. But I do think all those ideas like um, active open-mindedness, which were also suggested by Stanovich as a force, yeah. they're exactly that, right? Because there is an infinite number of explanations for any data point that you experience, but just actively generating different ones, which is active open-mindedness, like what else could it be? How else could I look at this problem? This is exactly yeah. something that fosters insight. And that's one of the uh, things we still need. And I do think all those, all those ideas like probability theory, uh, rational choice, whatever, all those things, they are super central. I just don't think they're the, the essence of rationality, but I do think they are cultural artifacts. They are very, very powerful tools and we st should still teach them, but I think they are tools for insight, right? So for example, when I, when I look at all the problems like um, regression to the mean, mm -hmm. that's a statistical insight. It's not the essence of the problem or of what I'm doing in my mind, 
But understanding that this can lead to biases helps me to have some insights why certain things like about processes in the world. So I think many of those ideas, as they are also taught in like rationality in a more orthodox sense, they are still important, but the framing of them changes as they're not a solution, but they're really, yeah, what I already said, a tool for insight. So th that's well said. So that would mean potentially though, that we would increase the, the number of things in our repertoire that we label like enhancers of rationality. Other things that could improve our abilities to do relevance realization and insight uh, could also uh, be important to being rationality. So in a like that meta-perspectival ability that you talked about uh, there, uh, you know, there's good evidence that mindfulness practices enhance that. Uh, there's good evidence that mindfulness practices enhance um, our capacity to have insight and to reconfigure and zero in on the relevant information. Uh, and, and so uh, I've proposed that we should think about other kinds of practices that systemically and systematically help us overcome self-deception and, and by, do, by concentrating on the relevance realization, framing insight machinery, they should be included in our account of, of rationality. I, I agree with that. Well, that, um, that's, I, that's, that's already something really important. Most people would not think of meditation, for example, as a rationality practice. But if the argument we're making is correct, if, if, and there's evidence to back it. If it is systemically and systematically reliable, et cetera, then it would be such, it would be a practice that would, should be properly yes. considered a rational practice. Where can I actually make a big step to another topic where I totally agree with you, which is self-knowledge, right? Yeah. Uh, I do think understanding you. So I will always see the world through what I perceive in myself, right? I, I perceive the world through who I am. Um, which means the more I understand myself, the right. more I can filter yes. it out from how I see the world. Yes. So for example, maybe I'm a suspicious person and therefore I will constantly think everyone is plotting something. And then when I see someone plotting something against me, I can remember, oh, wait, I know people already told me I'm always kind of suspicious. So yeah. maybe it's not a property of the world, but it's a property of me looking at the world. And then I can overcome deception. That, that's fantastic. And you know, I love this point. Uh, <laughs> because this, I mean, this, is, this was an, the original Socratic proposal, right, that at the core of Socratic rationality um, is, is Socratic self-knowledge, which is not your autobiography, but exactly this. It's understanding. It's more like, I keep saying, it's not your autobiography. It's more like your operating manual. What are, what are your functions and how do they work? And like, uh, yeah, so that kind of, that a, a profound kind of self-knowledge is actually a constitutive factor for being rational in the way that you and I are talking about it. I think, I think this is a fantastic point. Now, I think there's another Socratic dimension, um, and you and I haven't talked about it too much, so if you don't have a lot to say, that's, that's fine. Uh, but I'm also interested in the other side of uh, the Socratic proposal of rationality that's been emphasized by L.A. Paul and Agnes Callard, which is, you know, rationality is a transformational process, a developmental process. And again, you can't infer your way through it. You can't calculate your way through it. Um, but nevertheless, we have to include that in our account of rationality, because if the development of rationality is not itself a rational process, you get into all kinds of performative self-contradictions. Uh, that's Agnes Kellard's, she, that she calls it proleptic rationality. And so I'm wondering, what do you think of that? The fact that it, our, our self-knowledge is not only retrospective, 
but it also has to be you know, powerfully prospective. It's not only what kind of person am I uh, in order to be rational, like you just argued, but in a very profound sense, also what kind of a person am I aspiring to be? And how well is that aspirational process going? And I think that would also be a, a central thing people would need to have in order to be proper rational agents. What do you think of that proposal? I think it sounds great, but I also think it's not my niche and not something where I concretely have something co to contribute. Yeah. Um, so I'll leave it to the people who have thought about exactly this question the most. Uh, but I do associate something else with it, um, which is right this transformation, um, which is also about how we are learning. And when you look yes. at Bayes Bayesian decision theory and so forth, it's this incremental updating on information. Um, but then um, I read up on Paul Thagard's idea, of, for example, learning in science. So he calls it the, the cognitive science of science, where yes. actually learning more is not just accumulating more information and knowledge, but it is also a deep transformation. It's conceptual change. Yes. And again, it's exactly this complete reframing of how you look at something. Yeah, that's very much. And, and so Thagard's work, uh, um, it's very much in the Piagetian frame. Uh, where, where you're going through, you're not just getting a quantitative change where you're increasing uh, incremental change, but you're getting transformational, transformational change. You're changing um, the functions you have available, not just the amount of information you're processing with your existing functions. I like to make this comparison for people, the analogies like this. You, you have English and you can keep accumulating information with English. You can keep writing things down in English and processing it, but then I give you graphing. Now you can record information you cannot well record with just English sentences. And so now you can solve problems you couldn't solve before. So the first, if all I'm doing is increasing the amount of information I'm storing with English, that's incremental. But when I get a transformational change, I get a new emergent function that allows me to tackle new kinds of problems. And of course, kids go through this. At least that's the being a Piagetian argument. And part of what I'm proposing is that doesn't stop like, like Piaget thought when we are 18. Many of the Neo-Piagetians yes. are arguing, and right? No, no, development keeps going. And for me, this is where the topic of rationality blends into the topic of wisdom. When people are getting this profound, right, self-knowledge, they're increasing their capacities for relevance and insight and reasoning. I'm with Anna. I, we're not throwing any of that out. But think about what we mean by a wise person. They have tremendous insight, right? They, they can zero in on the relevant information. They have profound self-knowledge, both retrospectively and prospectively. They, they aspire well. As Socrates said, he knew what to care about. Um, this now, and they have that meta-perspectival ability that Anna was talking about. These are the hallmarks of wisdom. And as soon as you go make it a topic about wisdom, we all should realize, and all do humility, that we all can go a long way towards becoming wiser people. So our development is not done. We're not finished. Uh, and proposing that we are, I think, is also part of what I object to, to that old classical Cartesian model that we sort of get finished at some point. We're sort of just done. Um, very well said. Um, I'll again jump a bit, but um, exactly the, all these topics that you're making here about also insight and right conceptual change, uh, gestalts, uh, Piaget, all of that. Um, so this is a huge part of kind of the, I, I call it the great rationality uh, debate number two. Um, right. And in there, the most important name for me is Tepophiline. 
And right. he talks a lot about perception and how exactly this matters a lot, right? So main points he makes, for example, is uh, obviousness is never part of the environment, but is exactly more, I would connect it to your points about relevance, really. Exactly. Right? exactly. This is so obvious. No, you are deciding that this now matters to your problem. And this is, you are actively doing that. Um, and he makes all those points. So the, the whole question of how by learning and integrating new information, you also see things differently and also how different people see things very differently. And therefore he really connects us to entrepreneurship and how some people just see solutions, like see them yeah. where others don't. So um, I, I really love all the points he makes. And I, I still think you, you guys should totally talk to each other and write something together. Um, I think it's very closely related. <laughs> It is. It, it is. And, and, and again, I want to thank you for connecting me to that literature. Um, I, I, I often start my introduction to cognitive science course, uh, probably by lecture two. And I say, you know, in everyday life, we rely on what's obvious in order to guide us. But in cognitive yes, science, we have to explain how you generate your ob that obviousness, which like, yeah, how, how is that done? It's not part of the physics. How do and, 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 and the point you just made. Obviousness is not static. It's con we're yes. constantly evolving what we find obvious, constantly, constantly doing that. We're constantly in development and it can go through radical sort of transformations for individuals. And all of the inferential reasoning, algorithmic stuff is nested within and dependent upon all of those judgments about obviousness, et cetera. Yes. And there can make another point, which is um, so in the original literature where you like rational choice theory and so forth, you have the underlying assumption of epistemic rationality and instrumental rationality. And you have this main assumption that, right, the better your beliefs are calibrated to the actual structure of the world, the better your instrumental rationality. But Tepophiline makes the point like he connected to uh, Donald Hoffman's idea of um, the interface theory of perception, which is no. Um, the way you perceive things, the way your attention works, it is for you, right, succeeding and being fit and adapted to the environment. And um, often non-veridical, or I don't know how you say it, like uh, strategies like- Non-veridical is right, non-veridical is correct. Yes, strategies actually are like dominate the fitness landscape. Um, so, right, so just as, let, let's just talk about overconfidence, right? Overconfidence in many ways, it is just the dominant strategy and being the more self-skeptical uh, <laughs> thinker yeah. will actually uh, not help you. Um, and I think this really asks, uh, this really answers the question of how do epistemic and instrumental rationality relate? And it's way more, I really do think this instru like instrumental rationality is the core and then your, your perception is a tool to reach that goal. So very often you do have, right? There, it, it, there is just no objective truth that matters to you necessarily, but how does it relate to you? So the meaning of your actions are grounded in yourself. So that's again, like why, of course, losses are way worse than any gains because your fundamental loss would be any damage to yourself with, right. with which any, any utility would be gone. So of course, because everything is subjective and grounded in yourself, um, of course, um, you would perceive a threat way differently than you would um, see something positive. Yeah, I think this is right. I mean, uh, uh, I, uh, in this way, I think the great insight of pragmatism was the, was the realization that we don't just pursue truth, we pursue relevant truth. Um, yes. I still think there's truth within relevant truth, by the way, because yes, you want to be 
Yeah, yes. because you want to be able to say that our theories can be true, etc. Uh, but yeah, one of the no, I, I agree, and I still I think usually, of course, you also yeah. It, anyway, yes, please continue. <laughs> well, what, what I was saying is the but the, what what the pragmatists did is they tried to reduce truth to relevance, and I think that was a mistake. And, and, and part of what part of the work that needs to be done, and what you're putting your finger on, if I can reframe it a little bit is to get clear about how these two different how these two different normativities work on each other how do they they correct each other because anecdotally and that's all i'm saying it is right now we know that we we, we don't care about all kinds of truths and you said we will we will pursue the adaptive over the over the accurate many many times but we also will correct what we find relevant because it isn't necessarily close enough to the truth and yes. so these two are somehow these two I don't have anything positive to say here other than this vague hand waving, which is why my hands yes. are waving. But the, 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 somehow these two play off against each other in a self-corrective manner. Um, I think, of course, right, and like the ideas about the enlightenment and every scientific knowledge, when you learn it, you can often integrate it into relevance. So it's not completely irrelevant, yeah. but often it is highly relevant. But it's, yeah, but the, the relevance matters in the end. Uh, but very often, of course, um, how you can use, um, yeah, just like how, how you can operate is influenced by your knowledge. And actually, there you can connect again the whole idea by you of relevance realization to, and, and, and use this to bring together the axiomatic rationality and ecological rationality. And then suddenly we can also integrate that with the more uh, naturalistic decision making by Gary Klein, which yeah. was also, he also made the point, it that, like expertise in real life environments, it really depends on how much. Um, experience you have of something it also matters how much knowledge you have because then of course your pool uh, on which you can like from which you can uh, just like <laughs> pull your knowledge or your ideas or your insights is bigger um, and it's easier for you to ignore things because you've seen them fail before and you can just right you, yeah. you, you can yeah. zone in on the right thing so um, yeah I really think this is how you can bring all those ideas together really. My son and I were doing work together on a book uh, on yes. plausibility and pedagogy, but he's doing stuff on uh, uh, the, the whole attempt within pedagogy to do critical thinking skills. And he was he was coming to the, the, the same sort of point uh, that right you you can't you can't sort of lift them off axiomatically independently from the particular skills and perspective generating abilities that, that are needed within a, 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 within a domain. Um, and, and so one of one of the uh, one of the authors, I think it was McBeck, I can't remember, uh, said, you know, what you what what you want is for people to actually uh, have a proper philosophical training in in in, in, in various areas, uh, because the philosopher tries to bridge the axiomatic with trying to get the some of the the knowledge of the discipline and the skills and the and the perspective. And I thought that was again something that made my my Socratic heart warm a little bit because of, yeah, uh, because that project of trying to bring those two together, like you're talking about, that's one thing you can see as, you know, been very much, uh, you know, part of, until very recently, part of the job description of the philosopher was to do exactly that kind of, uh, 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 that kind of thing. Uh, and so the fact that uh, some of the recent research is pointing back towards that is also very interesting. Yes, what yes. so what's like what's cut what's on the edge of your thinking right now what are, what are you sort of gra grappling with right now um so i think 
my my process of thinking is usually I I get a lot of information in my head, I engage with a lot of material, and then I notice, oh, I have an insight. And then like something is there, but then actually formulating it, yeah. it takes even longer, like actually being able to put it in words. So I feel like, and this is exactly the, the part about embodied uh, cognition, right? So I already feel I have, oh my God, this makes sense. Somehow this fits together, yeah. but then actually engaging like with, oh, what have they actually written exactly? Like how, how right, 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 right. This, is, this is more, this is more, a different process than the, the, the other thing is way more intuitive really. Um, so um, I think I'm, I already feel like there is way more and I'm still trying to formulate it more clearly. Exactly. Also this point of what, what can we really learn for daily life from, from these new, yeah. new yeah. ideas. Um, yeah. And I'm, I'm still just also going through all the material that's already out there. I, I, I have notes here and there's so many names here. I'm just like, wow, it's just such a joy to read so many amazing work. And I couldn't, like, I can't even mention them all. It's just, it's, just amazing so i should let you know that anna is working on her like on her thesis this is part of her thesis work and we are also working we're uh, on a uh, uh, we're hoping to get a paper written together uh, uh and uh, i'm very excited about doing that and uh, and i think we'll probably do something after that um and uh, so that's sort of the concrete stuff that's coming so i want everybody to keep their eyes open uh for uh, work that's going to be coming from anna um, I, I think um, I think she's going to uh, teach us a lot about how we should more rationally con consider and conceive of uh, rationality itself. So I think that's a great thing. Yeah, take the compliment; You're, you've earned it. Uh, so, um, uh, so I'm going to uh, ask Anna if she has any final things she wants to say here. I'll get her to send me some contact information in her notes. I'll put I'll put in the description of this video, um, and like I said, I, I will I'll, I'll definitely have Anna on again. Uh, perhaps when we get something done and we, we're it's published or something, uh, we can come on and talk about how great we really are and <laughs> all that sort of thing. Uh, but I wondered if you had anything you wanted to say uh, right now, Anna. Probably just. Just summarizing what you have said again, uh, which is uh, the main topics really, which is we need a paradigm shift in discussing rationality from a more computational uh, framework or yeah, paradigm to a embodied or like all four E's of cognition uh, yeah. kind of view on it. Um, and then I'm really excited about all the questions of unmeasurable uncertainty and how cognitive science can really yeah, be extremely relevant to this question. And as uh, Kay and King have also written their book, uh, Radical Uncertainty, this makes me very excited for applications in economics because they are leading figures there and they notice that there's a problem. Yeah. Um, so I do think there's, there's just so much more out there. And uh, yeah, I'm really excited to, to write a bunch and get way more ideas out there and find any discipline to which it uh, applies. I think you're right about how it's going to make an impact on economics, this paradigm shift. I also think it's going to make an impact on the philosophy of science. I think we're going to really see better um, what's going on in science because, I mean, we philosophy of science has already moved beyond very algorithmic models of how science is done. And I think this paradigm shift in understanding rationality is also going to impact uh, on uh, understanding of science. And my hope is that it will contribute to making a real bridge again possible between 
our understanding of science and our understanding of wisdom and meaning and what's been called spirituality for lack of a better term and bridging the two together, which is uh, one of my central projects. And I'm really uh, glad and happy uh, to have uh, Anna uh, helping with that and that I can help her with her work because I think it's really important. So thank you very much, Anna, uh, for coming today. It's been really thank a great you. pleasure. Thank you as well. I mean, <laughs> I'm beyond words. I'm super, super happy. <laughs>